This is Guns and Butter. Basic hypothesis for why this happened is that this is a sort of financial colonization. And what I mean by that is that what's happened at UC and many other universities is that Wall Street has gone casting around looking for new markets to make money off of. And new markets to sell financial services to new markets to invest in. And those new markets have come even to include social programs and social policy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Jim Hogue, Charlie Eaton, and Darwin Bond Graham. Today's show, The Commons, Banking in the Ivory Tower, and Public-Private Partnerships. These presentations were part of the Public Banking 2013 Funding the New Economy Conference produced by the Public Banking Institute. We begin with an introduction to Jim Hogue by Mark Armstrong, the Executive Director of the Public Banking Institute. Uh, The more I get into this, this is my first grassroots effort in terms of how do you lead a grassroots movement. And, And the question is, well, what are we doing here? And, and I'm convinced that we're just telling stories. We are telling stories to inspire people. A unique story, it comes out of Vermont, uh, which goes back to the Revolutionary War period. And Jim Hogue tells that story. And right now I want to introduce Jim Hogue. Excuse me, Ethan Allen. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Friends and fellow citizens, I humbly thank you and make bold to congratulate you for the wisdom you have shown in your choice of founding fathers. I am not so bold as to imagine that my remarks will provide any significant entertainment to the learned delegates assembled hither, but it is possible that you may be somewhat distracted by the untutored logic and sallies of a mind nursed principally in the mountainous wilds. As prologue, I will tell you straight. Some are appointed to office in this country who read the history of the cruelties of these wars with the same careless indifferency as they do the pages of the Roman history. Nay, some are preferred to places of trust and profit by the Tory influence. It stands all freemen in hand to prevent their further influence, for nothing could be more baneful to the liberties and the happiness of the country. For wherever such influence takes place, it robs us of the victory we have obtained at the expense of so much blood and treasure. Ever since I arrived at a state of manhood, and acquainted myself with the general history of mankind, I have felt a sincere passion for liberty. The history of nations doomed to perpetual slavery in consequence of yielding up to tyrants their natural-born liberties, I read with a sort of philosophical horror. So that the first systematical and bloody attempt at Lexington to enslave America thoroughly electrified my mind 
and fully determined me to take part with my country. And as I was wishing for an opportunity to signalize myself in its behalf, directions were privately sent to me from Miss Brown and Mr. Armstrong to raise the Green Mountain Boys and, if possible, with them to form a state bank in Vermont. This enterprise I cheerfully undertook. Five bills have been introduced in two years on the subject of monetary reform. The sun seems to shine with superior luster on one of them. Unfortunately, alas, it does not signify as a bill for a state bank. But we carry on. Let us carry on and bring to their knees all those who in the name of security make enemies, in the name of patriotism make treason and tyranny, in the name of peace make war, and in the name of liberty would turn us into slaves. Tribute, tribute, and tribute. The bell tolls for the union of the executive, legislative, judicial, and corporate it is the bill that tolls the death knell for the republic. For who will hold these powers to account? Where is the line that tyrants will not cross when the scribblers of our free press shield treason for their daily bread? Who will confront... <laughs> who will confront the thieves of our common and private property who will confront the procurers of our willing youth who turn our conscripts into redcoats and send them off to pillage in the farthest reaches of the globe? And who will confront, who will confront usurpers when our own elected servants, wrapped in the comfort of their brief authority with pretended zeal for good order and government, strike at the lands and labors of honest citizens and inasmuch as the malignity of their disposition toward partisans of liberty flames to an immeasurable and murderous degree, they have in their newfangled laws so calculated them as to correspond to the depravedness of their minds and morals. In them laws, they have exhibited their genuine pictures, the emblems of the insatiable, avaricious, overbearing, inhuman, barbarous, and blood guiltiness of disposition and intention are therein portraited in that transparent image of themselves that cannot fail to be a blot and an infamous reproach to them to posterity. God damn them. God damn their laws, governor, king, council, and assembly. I'll make a hell for them and every son of a bitch that will take their part. Now, in, uh, in that effort... I have prepared a modest report on the commons. <clears throat> William of Orange of the Convention Parliament of 1689 has set down in Blackstone, in Ray Safety of the Whole, and Locke, in Ray Representative Republican Governance, and Adams, Allen et al., in the right to self-government and self-preservation, and the Virginia Convention of 76, providing for the general safety, 
And just as Samuel Chase in Calder v. Bill, $3, $3.86 to $3.88, U.S., 1798, raid the nature and ends of legislative power, and the Second Constitutional Congress, July 4, 1776, granting the free and independent states full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other things which independent states may of right do. And again, Justice Chase, that each of the several states was a sovereign and independent state with its own authority and its own law, without any control from any other power on earth. And in the works of Paine and Jefferson and Franklin, for the common good and the good of the commons and keeping of the commons as opposed to the theft of the commons versus the common use of the commons and purpose and inheritance of and rights to the commons for the many and not the few, for the keeping of sheep and goats and horses and keeping the commons in perpetuity. And this is self-evident as in the word commons, root, com, as in community, committee, commission, commerce, commonwealth, communication, as in to make common, and commend, commingle, commiserate, commute, commit, commode, communion, commodity, common sense, common law, and common good. And the responsibility shall be held in common trust and not private hands, and therefore shared in common and not restricted. And this includes the affairs of government and the medium of exchange and the air, and the airwaves, and the water, and the waterwaves, and the groundwater, and the lakes, and the streams, and the oceans, and the creatures thereof. And when, as for the writings of Marshall Mason, Madison, Adams, Allen, and Jefferson, at all the commons is stolen from the people, they shall reclaim it, though they replenish it with their blood and the blood of tyrants, and so assert their sovereignty over it, and secede it from those who violate the commons, which also include inalienable rights, and freedoms which are granted by nature and in common with all people as in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is self-evident in the course of human events, self-evident in natural law, self-evident as in obvious, <laughs> clear, not to be denied, plain for all to see, as in, hey, dumbass! Don't surrender our birthright, especially to tyrants, especially to traitors, especially to beady-eyed rats, smirking chimps, and fat, useless, backstabbing pretenders and pieces, pieces of pretenders to the common good, especially to worthless, witless, brainless, treacherous, underhanded, and self-serving, groveling, mean-spirited, treasonous, pompous, arrogant, destructive, cowardly, unctuous whores. Whores. Whores, leeches, and panderers, whose mission it is to divide up the world and the peoples of the world and to pillage, pillage, and pillage, and what they can't pillage, they destroy, while the best and the brightest stand around holding candles that belong up their asses and ours. 
for giving the bastards everything they want so they can pillage some more with our treasure and our children and our friends and our parents. And we take it and grovel and call ourselves free. And some have the nerve to call themselves sane while our employees at the trough devour our public and private wealth and shovel it onto their detestable accomplices, the maggots and tyrants and traitors of planet Earth. Thank you. If you have any questions, I'm buried in Vermont. You've been listening to Jim Hogue as Ethan Allen. Jim Hogue is the chair of the Vermont State Public Bank Committee. We continue with Charlie Eaton. Charlie Eaton is a Javits Fellow and a doctoral student in sociology at UC Berkeley. He spoke on banking in the ivory tower, Wall Street profits versus public capital at the University of California. Today's show, The Commons, Banking in the Ivory Tower, and public-private partnerships. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Okay, I promise some pleasure with this pain. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, again, I'm Charlie Eaton from UC Berkeley. And I think a lot of you probably know the story of cuts at UC pretty well. You probably know pretty well that tuition has tripled over the last 10 years from 4000 and change a year to over 12,000 and change a year. We've had cuts in enrollment of qualified Californians. Our classrooms are overfilling, and as we just heard from strike debt, students are taking on increasing amounts of debt. Um, But what's a little bit less known is that UC as an institution has uh, doubled its own debt um, in just the last four years. Okay. That's me. Uh, And I promise after this presentation, you will want to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. So you should just go ahead and do that right now. Uh, So as I said, uh, UC's debt doubled in just four years. This is UC's debt uh, since 2007, went from $6.9 billion to over $14 billion. And... um, What has happened is that in addition to the cuts, because of the debt service costs associated with this doubling of debt at UC, students have taken yet another hit, and potential students who can't get into UC, um, because of money going to pay debt service costs instead of paying for UC's core mission. So we're kind of on the front end of research about why this is happening. We put out a report called Swapping Our Future, Um, back in November. It got some attention. There's a bunch of copies uh, over there that everybody can grab after this, because I know you'll want your own copy. Um, But the basic hypothesis for why this happened is that this is a sort of financial colonization. And what I mean by that is that what's happened at UC and many other universities is that Wall Street has gone casting around looking for new markets to make money off of. 
and new markets to sell financial services to new markets to invest in. And those new markets have come even to include social programs and social policy. Um, and what has happened uh, to follow Naomi Klein's uh, uh, thesis of disaster capitalism is that when there's a financial crisis or revenue crisis at an organization, that's the prime time for a Wall Street institution to come in and say, we've got a solution to sell you to your revenue shortfall problem. And that solution involves us uh, issuing more bond debt for you, uh, engaging in derivative contracts with you, selling you additional financial services. Um, But those things come with a cost. In Jerry Brown's words, The trade-off is universities need to show that they're not going to invest the capital from those financial services and from that bond debt in core mission programs and expanding access and keeping tuition down. Rather, they need to show that they're going to invest that capital in things that will uh, bring significant returns. And one of the things that Jerry Brown points out is that's been an investment in what's called the amenities arms race in colleges. If you go to a UC campus, you'll see the fancy new dormitories that have been built. You'll see the fancy new stadium at UC Berkeley, which now notoriously, we were told, it would turn a quick profit, but in fact it's losing tons of money because they can't sell a bunch of the seats for the stadium. And so students are going to have to pick up the costs of not having enough revenue to pay off the revenue bonds. Um, And what UC does every time it takes out this debt is in order to get the best rate, they say, well, we promise if the revenue project, whether it's a dormitory or a dining hall or a medical center or a stadium, if it doesn't return the revenues we expect and that you on Wall Street expect, we can always raise tuition. And if politics makes it difficult to raise tuition, we can always limit enrollment for students from California so that we've got more space for students outside of California that can pay higher tuition rates. So a little bit more of this story. Uh, This this isn't that interesting. Um, so, So a little bit about how they do this how they've expanded their debt. Um, Like other parts of the economy, they've used fancy derivatives and financial instruments that haven't delivered what promise it. And the big one that we documented in this report that got a lot of attention in the media is called the, the interest rate swap. And basically what an interest rate swap is, is it's a contract that's associated with bond debt. And so what happens is, I'm UC, I'm gonna take out a bond, and I'm going to go to a bank, perhaps the same bank that's uh, the broker for the bond that I'm selling on the bond market, and I'm going to make a contract with them. And in UC's case, they said, okay, we're going to pay one of our interest rate swaps is with the now deceased Lehman Brothers Bank, um, which then got transferred to Deutsche Bank, which some of you might know, has been found complicit in LIBOR manipulation and interest rate fraud. Um, But so we say, all right, we're going to pay you $750,000 fixed payment a month. And in exchange, you're going to pay us a floating rate. And that floating rate will depend on 
where the bond markets are at, what the interest rate is on the bond market. And it's basically like UC would say it's an insurance policy. In a way, it's also a bet. And so UC has lost so far $50 million on this bet um, and stands to lose $200 million on this bet because with the economy crashing, with LIBOR manipulation, the rate paid to us by banks on the interest rate swap is so low that we're losing huge amounts of money. And, uh, and the question is, if that's the only way making this bet that we lost, if that was the only way to borrow all of this money, should we have borrowed the money in the first place at all? So if the question is that, well, why did we borrow the money in the first place at all? Um, and why are we continuing to, uh, to maintain these contracts? Now, I see, I think this is Supervisor John Avalos. Is that right? So a round of applause for San Francisco Supervisor John Avalos. So I bet that Supervisor John was around when the San Francisco Asian Art Museum ran into trouble with one of these interest rate swaps. And what the city of San Francisco did as a financial sponsor of the Asian Art Museum was they said, you know, this interest rate swap was kind of a scam, and you sold it to us on a fraudulent basis, and we can't pay it off, so we want to renegotiate this swap. And they got the bank to say, okay, we're going to eliminate the swap agreement. You're off the hook for these swap contract payments. And it saved, I believe, about $10 million. Now, the folks at UC haven't done that. Also, the folks at Harvard University and Vanderbilt haven't done it either, even though at Harvard they lost a billion dollars on these interest rate swaps. Um, so why, why wouldn't UC try to renegotiate? Well, part of the story is people like Monica Lasano. Monica Lasano, as you see here, is, uh, is one of the proprietors of the La Opinion newspaper in Los Angeles, um, she's also a UC regent. She's also, at the same time that she's been a UC regent, has been on the board of Bank of America, um, one of UC's major creditors. This is Russell Gould. He comes from Wachovia Bank after he, uh, he was a vice, actually he was a CEO at Wachovia Bank and then became a Wells Fargo vice president when Wachovia went bankrupt also a UC regent during this period. So guys like Russell and women like Monica went out and said, hey, we've got this other former regent, Peter Taylor, and Peter was the West Coast uh, Public Finance Division Director for Lehman Brothers at the same time that he was a regent. And they went to him and they said, hey, we want to do all this borrowing and he probably at some point went to them and said, hey, I got an idea. We could lend you all this money. And um, with the same bank that one of our regents was from, we went ahead and executed this interest rate swap agreement. Peter Taylor was then hired by Lasano and Gould as UC's CFO uh, beginning in 2009. And so he is this, the same person that maintains the interest rate swap uh, even though he comes from the bank that sold it to us and comes from the division that's responsible for public finance clients like the University of California. 
Likewise, Nathan Brostrom used to be the managing director for public finance at J.P. Morgan, 1996 to 2006, at a time when J.P. Morgan sold UC an interest rate swap. Um, he then got hired as the executive vice president for business uh, operations. So these are the folks who have been um, executing this. Again, I told you you would want to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. So if you haven't yet, um, please do. And I'll close on this. Uh, So these kinds of crises happen uh, throughout the economy. They've happened. We've had these kinds of revenue crises in California with our business cycles. There's obviously a revenue side solution to that where we can diversify the kind of taxes that we have. We can increase taxes on the very wealthy, as we have done recently, to increase revenue so that we don't have cuts to the University of California and we truly fund it as a public institution. But you're still going to have a business cycle. You're still going to have ups and downs in revenue. And there need to be alternatives to turning to Wall Street and alternatives to the sham solutions like more borrowing and Uh, more interest rate swaps, more derivatives, more risky financial services where you've got to turn a profit instead of fulfill your core mission. And public banking, to me, is obviously could be at the core of an alternative to that where we're providing capital during the right points in the business cycle uh, to organizations like UC that are at the core of our economy that have a key public mission. And... um, Uh, And so I'm proud to be a supporter of public banking and really happy to be part of this conference. And thank you so much uh, for your attention. You've been listening to Charlie Eaton. Charlie Eaton is one of the authors of Swapping Our Future, How Students and Taxpayers Are Funding Risky UC Borrowing and Wall Street Profits. We continue with Darwin Bond Graham. Darwin Bond Graham is a sociologist and freelance journalist. He spoke on public-private partnerships, Highway to Ruin. Today's show, The Commons, Banking in the Ivory Tower, and Public-Private Partnerships. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So when Mark called me a while back and said, hey, will you come speak to this conference about uh, infrastructure finance? I said, okay. And he said, what are your thoughts on public banking? And I said, I don't have too many well-developed thoughts. Um, I told him my profession these days is more as I, I, I diagnose things within society and I don't prescribe solutions so much. So it's um, pretty interesting to sit through some of these other presentations and see some of the solutions uh, to the various problems that we're talking about. I'm going to talk about a problem having to do with the means by which powerful, concentrated pools of private capital extract value from public infrastructure. And that's sort of what I do mostly now in my day job. I, uh, I, I read a lot of boring documents and I look at a lot of um, economic and, and, and financial data, and I try to figure out how powerful business entities uh, squeeze value, squeeze wealth, dollars or whatever, uh, from 
diffused publics or consumers and so forth. And if you think about what, what that means, it means that uh, these, these, these often aren't you know, criminal activities. These are often perfectly legal activities. Sometimes they're criminal. Sometimes they involve uh, bending the rules around a little bit. But oftentimes we're talking about the theft of millions, hundreds of millions, even in the billions of dollars uh, by these powerful organizations. And it often goes unnoticed and uncriticized because the way that they do it is they're just vacuuming up the dimes and the nickels and the pennies that are sort of out there and no one notices that this is happening. So you have to, you have to pay really close attention. So that's something I've been doing with, with infrastructure. And so I'll, I'm, I'm going to run through um, some stuff with you all and try to explain what is the, the current state, the, the new privatization um, P3. Uh, has anyone heard of the notion of the public-private partnership? Okay, so this is a savvy audience, and you probably all know what this is all about already. Um, but pub- public-private partnerships, this is the new privatization. Um, so if you ever hear that word on the news, if you ever read it in the newspaper, if a politician ever advocates utilizing a public-private partnership to procure infrastructure, basically insert privatization where they say public-private partnership. Um, Public-private partnership, or P3, is a euphemism for privatization. It is different, though, in a key sense, and I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, so, boring, too long quote. Sorry, I stuck this in here right, right off the bat. Um, E.S. Savas, he's a um, professor at um, CUNY. He's, he's uh, one of the intellectual proponents of the, the new privatization these days. He's not, the, he's not the most powerful one, but I thought this quote was pretty good because to privatize infrastructure today, a lot of the proponents say that, well, you know, the United States has always had private, private infrastructure finance, privatized infrastructure, and so this is like going back to the good old days of the American Revolution and, you know, um, the good old days of the 18 and, and early 1900s in the United States. And so this, this particular individual, th- this is an argument that you will see expressed a lot in the coming political debate about public-private partnerships. And I say the coming, the coming political debate because this is, this, is, this is already here in California. There's already privatized infrastructure. It's going to get a lot uh, more intense in the very near future here. Um, so this is an aqueduct. This is a portion of the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal was, of course, um, not private, not really not public, not really. It was sort of the, one of the early quasi-public-private things, but you know, this, the state... Um, did essentially um, underwrite that infrastructure project. Um, this is Laurel Valley Plantation in Louisiana. A lot of the infrastructure in the American South was fully privatized. This, this, this particular canal runs along these slave shacks. Um, the plantation owner here built this canal so that they could barge their um, sugar to markets. And I, I put this slide in here just so we also think, you know, it's not, let's, let's think in a bigger picture when we talk about um, infrastructure. It's not just about how it gets financed and how it gets, how it gets built. It's also what we're building, right? So let's, all, let's also always keep that in mind. And that's really all I'm going to say about it. But, you know, if you're building canals on slave plantations to ship your sugar to the global market so that you can maintain your southern aristocratic empire, that's... Who cares how it's financed, right? This is a... Um, this is one share of stock in the Philadelphia and Lancaster Turnpike Road Corporation. Uh, this is thought of as probably the first um, significant 
highway built in the United States, and it was privately financed. So those those proponents of privatization are not um, being fully dishonest when they say a lot of stuff in the United States was built via private finance. Um, but what's, what's key here is securitization. Securitization is best thought of as a technology, in, in my opinion. And what, what securitization provides for is the ability to raise capital from um, an enormous distributed number of individuals and institutions and use it immediately to um, finance something in particular. And we'll, I'll revisit securitization in a minute. Uh, so to do this sort of historical sweep here, right, the early 1700s, 1800s in the United States, a lot of stuff is privately financed, turnpikes, canals, other forms of infrastructure. Here in California, they built this vast, weird infrastructure of things called plank roads, which um, connected a, a San Francisco and some of the other cities to the, the mines in the Sierra Nevadas, and they built um, turnpikes and highways, and all, pretty much all of those were privately owned, and you paid a toll to, uh, to traverse them, and the toll was the securitized revenue stream that was used to pay back the original lenders, and so that's the, that was the breakthrough, that, that's been one of the, the, the most fundamental breakthroughs um, under capitalism, and so that allowed for the construction eventually of things like the Golden Gate Bridge, but by the time we get to the 1920s and the 1930s, the historical suite brings us to a point where projects are just too big and complicated and important to have private investors building them. And so there's a political, a new, a new political philosophy really becomes hegemonic in the United States, and that's the political philosophy of the public ownership of public goods. And uh, it's... it's um, represented in the New Deal and all of the projects that were built um, during the New Deal. And it's represented very much in how World War II was financed and a lot of that infrastructure. And the Golden Gate Bridge is a fantastic example. And did any of you cross the Golden Gate Bridge to come here today? Lots of hands going up. Um, did, did any of you, perchance, drive by that giant construction project um, approaching the Golden Gate Bridge? Did you, did you notice all that? You know, they've got this, this huge tunnel and this... this um, bridge and it's all fancy and it's new. Did you know that that's in effect owned by a private French bank and a German construction corporation? Um, it's kind of interesting, right, because the Golden Gate Bridge was publicly financed, um, although a private banker from Sonoma County led the effort to have it built, and they, they named that original approach after him. It was called Doyle Drive, and what they tore down a few years ago, two years ago, was Doyle Drive, and they're replacing that with what they're calling the Presidio Parkway, and that's the thing that's owned by these private financial companies and um, this German construction company. Um, so 1940s, 50s, into the 60s, um, the idea that the public should own infrastructure and that the public should be in the driver's seat in terms of securitizing the revenue streams to pay for infrastructure remains dominant in the United States, and so you have the construction of this thing, right? This is the federal, um, the U.S. federal highway system that was um, designed under Eisenhower and mostly built under the Eisenhower presidency, and the securitized revenue stream there, I believe, is what gasoline taxes mostly and um, some other forms of revenue. So that's where you're getting your money to pay back the the um, bondholders. And the bondholders are, it is the private capital market still, for the most part, right? So... Uh, even under this notion of the, the public good, we haven't escaped um, the hegemony of capital. Capital is still 
um, private, the notion of the private ownership of capital is ultimately still um, driving this. Um, and we end up in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, we end up with the procurement and construction of just enormous infrastructure projects in the United States that create trillions and trillions of dollars in wealth and um, billions and billions of dollars in, in, in flows of income on a yearly basis. And so I live in Oakland, so I thought I would put a photo of the Port of Oakland up here. Port of Oakland is enormous. It's just enormous if you think about it. Um, they had to dredge all of these waterways. This is all landfill, so this is artificial land that they've built, right? And they've got these, these cranes and all of this infrastructure and this rail infrastructure and everything. It's an enormous project. And it's owned and it was built by a department of the city of Oakland. And by the way, Oakland is only, I think, the 45th largest city in the United States. It's actually kind of a small city. And yet, this small city of 400,000 people is able to build this massive infrastructure project. Okay, this is state and local government expenditures, 1990 to 2008. And, um, sorry, 1990, I, I put this slide together this morning and I was like, I have to go back to 1945. And so I looked around on the internet and I couldn't find a, a, a data set to import into Excel really quickly to go back that far. So I just went back to 1990. But if you went back to, say, uh, World War II, the trend is more or less the same, right? It's going to look like this enormous growth over time in the, amount of, um, in the amount of expenditures on capital goods by state and local governments in particular. And the federal government would look similarly also. And this is kind of hard to read because the numbers there are hidden but it's, we're talking in the hundreds of billions of dollars on a yearly basis for education highways, all of that stuff. And when we say education, we're talking about like building schools, building highways, building like a sewage ports, airports, stuff like that. So there's just enormous growth historically in terms of what we need to procure in society. Um, roughly 1995 to 2013, where, where we're at at the present, this is the total public construction spending this is from the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. They have lots of really good um, economic data online, and, the, and you can just hit a button, and it'll graph it for you really quickly. And um, the reason I put this graph up there is, again, um, total procurement of infrastructure in the United States, mostly under this model that we get out of the 1920s through 1950s, that, that New Deal era where we think of the public good, the public ownership of infrastructure as being really important. Um, that's what this line represents, is public, public construction of publicly owned goods held in the public trust, securitized with revenue streams um, that are sometimes, uh, sometimes the revenue is um, general obligation tax sources. Most of the time, most of this upsweep here is going to represent um, business-type enterprise. So that's um, uh, revenue bond debt, and I, I can explain that later if that's confusing, but that's like charging people um, a toll to cross the Golden Gate Bridge. That, that's like an enterprise type thing, whereas if you just take someone's property tax or the general sales taxes to build a school, that's more um, general obligation revenue streams. But the reason I put this slide up there is 2008, something happens, right? We all know what happened. Um, so there's a huge, there's a very significant decline 
in the amount of money that's being spent to procure public infrastructure. And we all know there's a public infrastructure deficit in the United States and bridges fall down from time to time and horrible things happen and we're not upkeeping the infrastructure we have. And the reason I put that up there is because that's one of the main arguments that the infrastructure privatization industry uses to advance their argument. The guy at the top is Peter Orzag. Uh, I think he was at Office of Management and Budget um, in the Obama administration. He's um, sort of a wonder kind, uh, numbers guy, um, super intelligent, policy wonk, um, loves data, big data, and all that, as the Obama administration apparently does. And what he's, what he's arguing here is that the free market should build infrastructure, not governments. He's a Democrat, or he worked for a Democratic administration. The guy at the bottom is Robert Poole. He's, he's of the Reason Foundation. He's one of the key intellectuals in um, advancing the ideology of privatization of, of infrastructure finance, and he's very important to us in this room. Um, I'm assuming most of you are from California. Some of you probably flew in from elsewhere, but if you're from California, he's very important because he spent the past 20, 30 years, um, he's actually written laws that are on our books now that allow for the privatization of infrastructure. The Reason Foundation is a very important center of intellectual thought around um, how to make public procurement of highways and um, other infrastructure into an opportunity for private profit. You're listening to sociologist and journalist Darwin Bond Graham. Today's show, The Commons, Banking in the Ivory Tower and Public-Private Partnerships. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So this is the Presidio... uh, Parkway project in San Francisco. This is the road I mentioned at the outset that is owned by a, uh, effectively owned, I want to be really careful with my words here, it's not actually owned, because this is where it's the new privatization. It's effectively owned by a private French bank called, well, it, an infrastructure fund called Meridium Infrastructure, and a German construction corporation called Hope Teeth. And last I checked, uh, corporate ownership is a um, tricky thing because people are constantly buying and selling each other, but last I checked about six months ago, Hoktif in turn is owned by a Spanish construction corporation called ACS, and Meridium is a, a part of the Credit Agricole Bank of France. But both of these um, have offices in New York, and that's sort of where they run their North American infrastructure privatization operations. And this imagery here, so the Presidio Parkway portion is this road that runs into those tunnels and it goes underground and then it pops out and then it goes on these elevated uh, spans and then it finally connects to the Golden Gate Bridge. So this slide isn't my slide. This slide says source Caltrans, but it's actually not Caltrans slide either. This is Jose Luis uh, Moscovich's slide. He is the executive director of the San Francisco um, uh, Transportation Agency. So he's the, he's the public servant in charge of figuring out how to procure public infrastructure. And I put this slide in here because it sort of explains how he justified privatizing that particular span of roadway in San Francisco. He's saying, historically, there are huge cost overruns on publicly procured projects, and that he is 
the fear of cost overruns at the bottom of the slide, if you can see that. He is afraid of cost overruns, and a lot of public servants are afraid of cost overruns, and sometimes there are really big cost overruns on big um, infrastructure procurement projects. You're wasting the taxpayer dollars, or you're, you know, you're putting us in debt to these private banks for our infrastructure that we need in a way that's not helpful. So he's justifying privatization of infrastructure as a way of escaping cost overruns. How does that work? This is the, this really confusing slide, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to break it down. Um, this is how proponents of public-private partnerships or the new privatization justify allowing private corporations and banks to finance the construction of infrastructure in exchange for their ability to control the wealth that that infrastructure creates, their ability to gather the securitized revenue stream, be it tolls, be it um, user fees, be it whatever. So what they say is, here's on the left is the, the old clunky public sector comparator. Um, gosh, it's not very sophisticated, you know. And you've got the base cost and you've got the transaction cost. The base cost and the transaction cost are basically how much is going to cost to build and then, you know, what are some... What are some of the various costs that we have to pay the lawyers and so forth to like put all the documents together and you know uh, dot the I's and cross the T's? And then the financing costs, gee, that's pretty big too in the old model. But if you notice, the base and the transaction costs and the financing costs are actually less in the old model than they are in the public-private partnership model because even the people who advocate for privatization today know they can't claim that these costs are uh, less under the private model because obviously private debt is not tax exempt as is public debt, right? So when you issue a bond to build a road through a county, it's usually tax exempt. So usually you can secure that at a lower interest rate with better financing than you can say with a um, privately secured bond in the private capital market that, that comes with more cost. And the transaction costs are higher, and the financing costs are higher, and the base costs are higher. So what they say, they have this sophisticated notion of value for money where they say, under the old model, the public retains all the risk, the risk being cost overruns. What if there's a labor strike? Or for a, a really apt example here in the Bay Area right now, what if those bolts we installed on the Bay Bridge, what if, the, you know, what if something goes wrong? That'll be really expensive. And yeah, that stuff happens from time to time, right? And so what public-private partnership proponents say is let us privatize the financing of the project, the construction of the project, and maybe even some other features of the project, and in exchange for that, we will agree to shoulder all the risk if something goes wrong. We will lose our equity, and the public will keep their equity. Does that make sense? Okay, I heard a couple different... We can, we, can, we can go back over that in, the, in, in Q&A really quick, but, um, but basically, you know, you know how like, risk has become this, this motif, this like, zeitgeist of contemporary capitalism, and everybody's a risk manager now, and derivatives can you know, handle all the risk of everything, and everyone's obsessed with risk under contemporary capitalism, and it's no different here in infrastructure um, finance, and so the, the, new, the new thing is, hey, offload the public can offload some of its risk if it allows private parties to obtain more of the reward that can be gotten from controlling infrastructure. It's just like, you know, it's just like the stock market, right? They say, you know, if you invest in a risky stock, you could, you could lose your shirt, but you could also make a fortune, right? Risk. Um, 
So these are the forms of, so it's not actually privatization, right? Because I'm sure we all think of privatization. We think that, you know, we think Margaret Thatcher walks into a, um, you know, a, some sort of stately oak-paneled boardroom and says, okay, we're going to sell off all the hospitals and all the canals and all the, all the housing and um, highest bidder or, you know, or um, Carlos Slim gets to buy the entire telephone system of Mexico or something like that, right? And they actually, and the investors actually own it, right? The reason that P3 in the United States is not going to be that kind of privatization is because the private investors don't legally actually own the underlying asset. So on the, on the very left of this scale, DBB is design, bid, build. That's the clunky old New Deal model where the government designs a project and then says, hey, we need someone to build it. And so they put out bids and then bidders come back and they build the project and it's completely, and the, the financing of the project and the construction of the project and the operations and the maintenance and everything, that's, that's always uh, completely controlled by the public entity. And the underlying asset is completely owned by the public entity. Does design build, design build finance, design build finance, operate, maintain, build, operate, own. So as you move from left to right, this is the spectrum of privatization, right? I believe the Presidio Parkway is a number four. I believe it's a design, build, finance, operate, maintain. The, um, and sorry, I haven't looked at the, um, this was six or seven months ago that I looked at all the documents, but I think it's, it's something like a 30 plus year contract under which the private parties agreed to design, design the second phase of the project, build the project, finance the construction with capital that they raise, supposedly, we'll get to that in a second, and then operate and maintain the project, but Caltrans and the San Francisco Transportation Authority will ultimately own the project. You still own it. So we, the public, still own it. That's great, right? It's not full privatization, right? That's great. Actually, it's not, because the reason they've created this very sophisticated uh, means by which the public still owns everything, but they just do all the work and, all, and take all the profits, is because under previous models of privatization, private investors have found it very inconvenient when things collapse and they actually own the asset, right? So they want to leave the public with the ownership of the asset because that's actually problematic, because that's risky. Remember, remember that other slide I had a second ago? That's kind of weird. So the whole promise is that we'll shoulder more of the risk if you just let us skim off more of the cream. But actually, unless you get to five, unless you get to a full, fully privatized form of infrastructure, finance, and procurement, build, own, operate, where you're letting private corporations actually just get right off the ground and just build, build something and own it, if you're at four or below, right, the public shoulders enormous risk. And there's examples, and I can talk about them in California, where the public really got screwed in Orange County and San Diego with privatized highways in the 1990s and early 2000s, but won't talk about them right here. Uh, so the Presidio Parkway, the privatized road in San Francisco, it's being uh, the developer concessionaire, right? So it's uh, MENA USA, which is Meridium, that's the French private investment bank. Hope Tiff, that's the German construction corporation. And then you've got, and what, the, what they do is these, these large construction corporations and infrastructure finance corporations, they, they team up in these big concession, concessionary um, teams to uh, 
um, take over public infrastructure projects. So they've got four, uh, three or, yeah, they've got three different um, engineering and construction firms. They've got their financial advisor, their legal consultants. Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe, probably a familiar name, San Francisco law firm, probably the biggest law firm in public finance. Um, they invent a lot of these clever laws and stuff, is what their lawyers do. Um, and at the bottom, the core lenders, Barclays, Merrill Lynch, Scotia Capital. So at the bottom, the core, the core underwriters, right, they're supposed to be the people who provide the private capital to build the public project. Supposed to be. And they do, they provide some. And the people toward the top, see where it says equity contributor toward the top? So Hoke Tiff, PPP Solutions North America and MENA USA, they're the ones providing the equity and so they're the ones who could really lose their investment if things go wrong, which things can still go wrong, right? The risk, how do you measure risk? Things can still go wrong, but they'll lose their equity. The core lenders at the bottom, they're bondholders. They can't really lose much here unless things go really wrong, right? Um, and the next few slides are going to get really messy. I apologize. I'll try to explain them as we go through them. Um, so again, our example... This is drawn straight out of the business plan for that privatized road in San Francisco. Um, so at the very top, you have the senior milestone bonds, um, which are private activity bonds worth $150 million. So this, this, is how they're this is how they're getting the money up front to build the project. Right? This is really important. This is, this, is the, this is the absolute core of what's going on here in infrastructure privatization. Tiffia loans, equity contributions, interest earnings, bang. So private activity bonds are tax-exempt bonds. So if we're, allowing a private, if we're allowing private finance to publicly procure something, why would you give them a private activity bond that isn't taxed at the market uh, as, a, as a private? Right? If people are making private profit off it, why is it tax-exempt? Well, that's how they make part of their money, right? So it's essentially a, f a federal and state taxpayer subsidy. Uh, the, the TIFIA loans, right, that was a 1998 um, program of, of the Clinton administration and Republicans and Democrats in the Congress, Transportation Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act. And what they mean by innovation is the ability to privatize things, but to do it by using, again, federal taxpayer subsidized loans to make things uh, much, to, to bring in more money. Um, if you, you'll notice the equity contribution is actually quite small. It's $44 million dollars. This confusing slide, I, just, I don't even want to explain this. I just want to confuse you. This is how the, this, okay, so if you read the uh, contract, the, the final agreement between, they call themselves Golden Link Concessionaire Limited Partners, and that's all those companies I was just talking about. If you read the contract between them and the state of California, this is how they determine how much the state pays the private concessionaire. The milestone payment amount shall be, right, and then they have this funny little formula thing, 173 million, and then you have to adjust it, and it's really confusing. I can actually explain it, but I, I don't really want to because it's just, it's, this is actually like a, um, this is like a 16 or 17 page document. The uh, agreement is 200 pages. It's very complicated, and we go through more formulas. It's all very confusing. Um, so... This, this final slide right here is just to give you an idea of... So, so this new privatization hasn't really come here yet. Right? We have a road in San Francisco. 
Um, we have some stuff in the East Coast in Maryland. They're considering some highways in LA. For the most part, 98% of infrastructure in the United States is still design, bid, build, classical um, stuff. Not, not privatized financial models that allow these organizations to skim cream up the top. But it's coming, and these are the major players in this industry. At the top is the Macquarie Group, Goldman Sachs. You can go down the list. Some of these names are probably familiar to some of you. Um, seed number 27, it's kind of blurry. Actividades de Construcción y Servicios. That's the Spanish corporation that owns the German corporation that owns the road in San Francisco. And they're big. And they're here. And, the, and you can, I've got lobbying records. You can dig through them if you want. They're, on, they're online. And um, they're, they're, they're engaging with different officials in different states and the federal government to attempt to privatize more infrastructure. They just privatized the um, airport in Puerto Rico under a pilot program. They want to privatize the Chicago Midway Airport. So this public-private partnership model, it extends from highways and roads to ports and to airports. And there's a, um, the Long Beach County Courthouse is actually now privately financed um, under the same model. So it's coming, so don't be surprised if you read about it in the newspapers. Okay. listening to sociologist and journalist Darwin Bond Graham. Today's show has been The Commons, Banking in the Ivory Tower, and Public-Private Partnerships. The presentations by Jim Hogue, Charlie Eaton, and Darwin Bond Graham were part of the larger Public Banking Institute's Public Banking 2013 Funding the New Economy Conference of June 2nd through 4th in San Rafael, California. Visit www.publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me, you got me?